Well, as we have the privilege of coming to God's Word yet again, let's bow and ask the Lord's assistance as we do that. Our God and Father of all glory, we bow before you as we open your Word, and we ask that you would work through your Word by your Spirit, that you might transform us into the image of your Son. We don't want to remain as we are. We want to be transformed from one degree of glory to another. So I pray that this morning you would indeed help us to behold the Lord of glory in your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it was the 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche who famously declared in 1882 that God is dead. And while it was radical at the time, it was exactly what sinful man wanted to hear. This in conjunction with the doctrine of evolution that was developed by Charles Darwin only a couple decades before, modern man had found a way to explain life without God. See, for modern man, God was no longer necessary. But even this development came out of what is known as the Enlightenment, which was a philosophical movement that enthroned human reason as the ultimate arbiter of truth. This caused men to rule out the supernatural from life and from history. They said that God, uh, there shouldn't be anything in this world that is outside the laws of nature. If it can't be explained by our reason and powers of observation, then it can't be true. And this led famously to Thomas Jefferson to change his microphone to this. This caused Thomas Jefferson to famously take scissors to his Bible, removing all mentions of the supernatural, including miracles and all the rest. An illustration of where this kind of thought leads. But this sentiment is still prevalent today. If nothing else, it's become more militant. Secular people and organizations are on a crusade to stamp out the view that God can and does work in this world. But they also ridicule those who still believe that. But we who are biblicists, those who believe the Bible and believe that that our view of reality comes from the Bible, cannot avoid the fact that God has and God does work in our world. In fact, the reality is, is that the alternative is horrifying to think that God is unrelated and disinterested with this world is a terrible prospect. But we know that the great sovereign creator God can do whatever he wants. The Bible tells us that God has worked in significant ways in the past and each of our own individual stories that each of us could tell this morning document the fact that God works today as well. And when God acts in the world, we should sit up and take notice. If you've been with us, you know that we've been looking at Luke chapter 1. And if you aren't there already, I invite you to turn 
in your personal copy of God's Word to the book of Luke. The book of Luke, if you don't have your own copy of God's Word, I invite you to take a Bible that's in the pew rack directly in front of you, and you can find our passage this morning on page 1017, page 1017 of that pew Bible. Luke, so far here in Luke chapter 1, is beginning to tell of how salvation has come to mankind. How has the great sovereign God, the holy God, come and entered into this world in such a way to redeem humanity? And it all begins, it all began with a man named John. A man who was going to go before the Savior, go before the Messiah and announce to God's people and prepare God's people for what was to come. But before we get introduced to John, we get introduced to John's parents. Because even the announcement of John's coming birth showed the reality of the special nature of this forerunner. And today, in our passage before us, starting in verse 57 of Luke chapter 1, we see John being born. And it's in the occasion of him being born that we see how special this forerunner of the Messiah is. And so follow along as I read Luke chapter 1, reading from verses 57 through 66. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth... And she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would, uh, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosened, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. It's in these verses this morning that we will see four ways that God's people should rightly respond to his work in the world. Four ways that God's people should rightly respond to his work in the world. In the world, and we're going to see different aspects of this work, how he has invaded time and space and, and works in the lives of people. So, firstly, we see number one that God's mercy produces joy. God's mercy produces joy in his people, and we see this in verses 57 through 58. Our passage begins with the wonderful news that the time came for Elizabeth to give birth to her son. It had been nine months and now the baby was full term. Now, we need to remember that what makes this birth unlike most others. And that is that this couple was old and beyond childbearing years and they had no children of their own. 
But in the midst of this barrenness, God had broken in and blessed them with a child. God appeared to John's father, Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, in the temple, telling him that his wife would bear a son, thereby blessing them with what was humanly impossible. And so we see that here in verse 57 where it says that the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and that she bore a son was direct fulfillment of what God had promised previously. This verse shows us God fulfilling his promise. God always does what he says he's going to do. It's never in doubt. It's never in question. He does not go back on his word. If he promises it, it's going to happen. And even though in verse 24 we had been told that Elizabeth was pregnant, it's here in verse 57 that in one sense the fulfillment of God's promise goes on display for all the world. There is no doubt all can see the son that she bore and know that God has fulfilled this promise to this couple. Now, we learn that this arrival of the son was not a lonely affair, but there were many that came in to celebrate with Elizabeth. We, verse 58 says, And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Here we see that neighbors and relatives all came to celebrate that the one who was barren has now been given birth to a son. But notice specifically what Luke, the author here, highlights for us that the neighbors and the relatives noticed or that they saw in the midst of this, these circumstances. It says that they had heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. They saw the event of this son being born and saw the force that was behind that event. And that is the mercy of God to Elizabeth and Zechariah. Now this mercy of the Lord has been mentioned twice already in this chapter. And in fact, it's going to be mentioned two more times in this chapter. Verses 50 and 54, they're in the mouth of Mary. And then in verses 72 and 78, it's in the mouth of Zechariah. And so here in uh, verse 58, it's the only time that mercy is used by the narrator's voice. And thereby we can see that the events of chapter 1 here in Luke are underscoring the reality that God here in his beginning to act in time and space, he is displaying his mercy to mankind. It's mentioned five times in this chapter. On top of that, what it says here is literally that, that the Lord has magnified his mercy to Elizabeth. It's the word magnified that Mary had used back uh, in verse 46 where she says, My soul magnifies the Lord. And we remember we talked there about how he, she's worshiping God. She's making much of God in her magnification of God. And here it says that the Lord has magnified his mercy to Elizabeth. He is making much of his mercy to Elizabeth. Showing his mercy to be great. And that's why it's translated, the Lord has shown great mercy to her. 
Now, mercy here, as we've said already through this, this chapter, is, is the word that's translated in the Old Testament as tr- steadfast love or, or loving kindness. It refers to Yahweh's covenant, his undying love to his people. It's a love that he purposed and set upon his people. It's not a love that is earned or deserved. It's a gracious love that he gives towards his people. And therefore, Luke is telling us that the neighbors and relatives noticed in the midst of the giving of a son that it was the Lord's mercy that was being made great, that was being magnified in the midst of this event. And because they saw that mercy, what was their response? Look at it, verse 58. It says, and they rejoiced with her. They saw God's mercy and then they rejoiced. It produced a well of joy bubbling up within them that that was already in Elizabeth because it says they rejoiced with her, which means that she already had this joy. And then they were coming alongside and joining her in this joy. They were rejoicing because even though this couple was beyond childbearing years and they were childless and unable to have children, God reversed their fortunes and blessed them with a child. And so the mercy of God produced joy in them. And this is the case wherever God's mercy is shown. Whenever God displays his kind mercy to hell-deserving sinners, it's always a cause for rejoicing, is it not? It should always induce the redeemed to shout for joy in God. And friends, as we know, God's steadfast love and his mercy is not just something displayed in the first century or in ancient times. It's displayed in our lives as well. Have you not too seen the mercy of God in your life? Showing his kindness and love towards you that you did not deserve? And when was the last time that you really reflected upon that mercy that's been shown to you? Or have you maybe been taking it for granted? Just, oh yeah, thanks God. Have you really been set your heart upon it to to realize all that God has done for you? Well, if you've forgotten, let's let the scriptures remind us of his great love and mercy to us. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and just get a short reminder here of God's mercy to us. Because he has surely magnified his mercy to us as well that would cause us to rejoice. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. Paul, writing to the believers in Ephesus, says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Here we see that we were once dead and we have now been made alive. And what was the empowering force that made us alive? What was it that that caused God to move towards us? It was because he is rich in mercy, because of his great love towards you, that he made you alive in Christ. And he's seated us, raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places. Why? So that in the coming ages, he might show the riches of his grace in kindness. God's kindness displayed in the past, present, and future. Folks, God has been indeed very kind to us. He has displayed his mercy to those of us who believe. And this, reflecting upon this mercy, should produce humble joy in us a gratitude, a rejoicing that God would be so kind to to display his love towards us. Now, if you are here this morning and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, then let me tell you of the mercy of God for you. God has displayed his great mercy in that while you were still A sinner, Christ died for you. And all you need to do to receive the mercy of God, to receive the eternal life, is to repent of your sins and to trust in Him, to trust in that sacrifice that Jesus paid on your behalf upon the cross. And to know that because He did not stay dead, but He rose again to new life, that you too have new life in Him. You need to look to Jesus and realize that he lived the life that you could never live and that he paid, he died the death that you deserved. And so today, right now, right where you're at, you can call out to the Lord silently in prayer, asking God to save you, asking God to be merciful to you. And God has promised that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Do not leave today without knowing the mercy of God for you. And so just as Elizabeth and her friends rejoiced when they saw God's mercy displayed, so we too must rejoice at God's incredible mercy towards us. Well, the second response that we see in this passage is, that God, we see that God's discipline produces faithfulness. God's discipline produces faithfulness. And we see this in verses 59 through 63. So if you would turn back to Luke chapter 1. Verse 59 says, And on the eighth day after they came to, circum- they came to circumcise the child. 
And so the scene changes here that after the birth of the baby, we then fast forward eight days to the circumcision of the child. Circumcision, as you know, was established by God back in Genesis 17. God instituted this for all the male descendants of Abraham as a sign of those who were in covenant with God. Leviticus 12 verse 3 reiterates God's command to the newly established state of Israel, designating the eighth day as the the day of the circumcision. And so circumcision was non-negotiable for an Israelite male. This was part of what it meant to be an Israelite. But the text indicates that Beyond them just obeying the law and circumcising their child here on the eighth day, it was also the naming day. The day that John, or at this point just baby, would receive a name. Now there's no indication from the Old Testament that the eighth day or the circumcision day was also the day of naming. That was, uh, it, there doesn't seem to be any indication that that was uh, required by law. In fact, accounts in the Old Testament showed children being named right after they're born. Now, in this time, in the Greek and Roman world, children often received their names between the seventh and tenth day after birth. And so it's guessed or hypothesized that the Jews may have adopted a similar practice at this time. There's indications uh, several hundred years later of the Jews naming on the eighth day, but nothing around this time would indicate that this was other than this passage, that this is a regular practice. Now, it was common for children to be named after their father or their grandfather, which is why uh, those gathered around at this time were set on naming the child Zechariah. Look at what it says, uh, the second half of verse 59. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And so in the the midst of this baby receiving a name by crowd decision, uh, Elizabeth steps in and says, time out. Uh, No, that's not going to be his name. She gives an emphatic no in the text. She stops them in their tracks. Instead, she says, he shall be called John. John. Now she knew this, no doubt, because Zechariah, even though he had uh, been uh, disciplined with, with muteness, he came home from his vision in the temple and had relayed to Elizabeth, either by writing or some other form, that of what had happened and relayed all that the angel had told him to her. And so she knew that the angel had said that they were going to have a son and his name was going to be John. And so here, as Elizabeth steps in, stops the crowd and says, his name, or he shall be called John, this is Elizabeth living out and obeying what she knows to be true. She's following the words that God had spoken to them through the angel. She's, she's living by faith. She's obeying what God has said, even when it's not popular. The crowd was like, Elizabeth, what are you doing? Why are you naming your child John? Look at what they say in verse 61. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. 
I mean, it didn't make sense. They were confused. They didn't know anyone in the family that was named John, and therefore they didn't know why she was so emphatic and insisting on this name. It's not that she suggested the name John, or she said she kind of liked the sound of it. She says, no, he shall be called John. Now, it cracks me up that these people were so interested in the name of this child that was not their own. But then again, do we not even see today people who are, have very strong opinions about children's names who are not their own? So I guess it is just human nature that uh, we like to make comments about how we name each other's children. But since this group couldn't believe Elizabeth's choice, they thought they would gain some support by going to the father, who actually culturally had the ultimate say in the son's name. And so now all eyes turn to Zechariah. Zechariah. You didn't even know he was there, did you? He's not even mentioned in the text until now. Quiet Zechariah, who's sitting off to the side, who in fact has been quiet for nine months. Zechariah, the, the priest who has been under the discipline of God ever since he failed to believe the words of the angel that it's been spoken to him. And so God disciplined him and struck him with muteness, and as I'll argue in just a minute, also with deafness, I believe. And this, this God did in Zechariah's life in order to lovingly teach him the necessity of faith and obedience in his life. And so because of his condition, the fact that he could not speak and uh, and I believe cannot hear, they, they made signs to Zechariah. Verse 62, it says, And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Now it seems to be strange, to be a strange thing for people to do if he only couldn't speak. You know, if he, he couldn't talk, but he could actually hear all the dialogue that's going on, and they're like making signs to him, and he's like, uh, I, you know, I can hear your voice, but clearly nine months into this discipline, they re, they, it seems that he couldn't hear as well. And so they had to make motions to him, indications of what they wanted. Now, we don't know how much Zechariah has been involved up to this point. Uh, it seems he's been around, but he's been off to the side. The, the world of conversation and, 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 and the, the social interaction has really been sealed off for him in, in a significant way for the last nine months. And so he's probably been isolated in the sense for, for, for those nine months, sitting around, Elizabeth having to kind of get in front of his face to make motions to him, to ask him questions. But by and large, there's no extended conversation And now this, now that he's being asked what his son's name is, he asks for a tablet on which to write. Now a tablet, in our common language, can mean many different things. From an iPad to a piece of paper, uh, he received neither of those. He received what was, is believed to be a, a piece of wood with wax on it that then he could scratch with a, a stick or some other sharp object and be able to write letters into the wax. 
But in a real sense here, as Zechariah is poised to write upon this tablet of wax, his answer here would reflect whether he had learned his lessons in nine months of discipline from the Lord. Was he going to believe what that angel said because he disbelieved it before? Is he going to believe this time? Is he going to show that he has learned his lesson? What will his response be? And Zechariah then writes in the wax, John is his name. And Zechariah here couldn't have been more clear. The name John comes first in the Greek. He's emphatic. He comes out of the gate saying John is his name. He also uses the present tense. Elizabeth had said he shall be called. But Zechariah says his name is John indicating that he believes that John, that baby, has had a name for nine months. God is the one who named this baby. His name is John. I'm not calling him John. I'm not naming him John. God already named him that, and I'm just relaying to you what his name already is. And so we see Zechariah humbly pass the test. The discipline that the Lord had brought him through had produced faithfulness in him. It was restorative discipline. It was transformative discipline. It was loving discipline to teach Zechariah a valuable lesson. And believer, it's important to remember that God still disciplines his saints today. In fact, I want you to see this in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Many people today in their theology understand that God is a God of love don't also have within their theology a category for discipline. They believe that God is love and therefore there should be nothing uncomfortable or difficult that comes from his hand in my life. And yet that just isn't biblical. Hebrews chapter 12 Let's pick up in verse 5, and we'll read through verse 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
It is because God loves us that he disciplines us. Believer, that is crucial that we understand. God's discipline to us comes out of his love. It does not come out of his wrath. It does not come out of his anger. It flows because he loves us as children. But what does this discipline look like in our lives? Well, it looks like the trials and the difficulties and the sufferings that we receive. It comes in the form simply of maybe just uncomfortable circumstances, something inconvenient that troubles you and and is trying to teach you patience. Or it could come as intensely as difficult and deep suffering. As we know, life in this world has many difficult and painful things that come our way. But what we need to see is that these pains are not random. These difficulties are not purposeless. They are used in the hand of a loving God to shape us into the image of his Son. In fact, it is in this that we see the mighty sovereignty of God. That sin and evil are not outside of his control, but he is able to use evil and sin for his purposes, for ultimate good. And this is the message all through the Bible. Ultimately seen right at the cross. That God used the worst evil in the world to bring about the most good. And that is true of all difficulty and evil. And this should be profoundly comforting for us believers. To know that the difficult trials that you're walking through are not out of God's control. That they are not meaningless. But that your loving Heavenly Father knows the pains that you're experiencing. He knows the physical pain. He knows the heart pain. And he's using that to make you more like his son. He doesn't want to leave you where you're at. He wants to see you more transformed. And that often comes through chiseling difficult discipline. Now, unlike Zechariah, we can't point to certain pains and difficulties and pinpoint exactly why God sent them our way. Zechariah knew why he was mute and deaf. He knew why he couldn't talk. He was told by an angel. Uh, Our trials and difficulties, we don't have that kind of clear, direct revelation from God. But we can know that God is using all of them. And as I said, this is not, the difficulties in our life are not because God is punishing us for our sins. He is disciplining us to purify us, to see that the sin is eradicated from our life and that we learn to walk in obedience in new ways. But again, this flows from his love. I mean, just just think about it. If God actually had the mission to come and punish you for your sins, what does punishing humanity for their sins look like? It looks like hell which is eternal torment forever. That is what it would mean for God to punish you for your sins. And because we're in Jesus, hallelujah, we'll never experience that. But for now, in the midst of this fallen world, God uses these difficult things to shape us. Because there's no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1 says. And so when we're in Christ, we don't experience the wrath of God. 
We experience his love as God seeks to purify us. And what is God's goal in purifying your life and mine? It's that he might produce faithfulness. That we might walk according to God's word more faithfully. That we might trust what he has said more resolutely. That we might make choices that honor him. That we might be more obedient to Christ. But you see, our response to the sufferings and trials of this life are significant. Zechariah responded truthfully and faithfully. He, he was tempered and humbled by the discipline. But as uh, Pastor John MacArthur has said, that the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And as God's suffering comes into our life, either we're going to melt and be formed by God or we're going to harden ourselves against God and be more resolute against Him. And so I ask you, are the difficulties of your life causing you to, to soften before the Lord or causing you to harden before Him? I can only imagine that Zechariah had some of the sweetest prayer of his life during those nine months that he couldn't speak or hear anybody else. Having the sounds of the world shut out and his own mouth stopped, only God could hear his voice during that time. And I bet he spent lots of time talking to his only conversation partner at that, during that time. And friends, this is where we must run as well. In the midst of our life and difficulties, we must run to the Lord as well. And remember that He is near us. Jesus is our good shepherd who walks with us. He, is, he understands our pains and our trials. He's near to the tenderhearted. He is our gentle Savior. He has said, as recorded in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I pray God's discipline produces faithfulness in each one of our lives as we respond to his loving discipline. Well, as we flip back to Luke chapter 1, if you're not there already, the end of verse 63 notes that after, John, after Zechariah wrote on the tablet, his name is John, it says, they all wondered. They all wondered, or, or they all marveled. They were all in awe of what they saw. They marveled at the fact that Elizabeth and Zechariah had the same strange name. Even though Zechariah didn't hear what Elizabeth had said, they were unified, they were aligned, and it was the same thing. But they were about to be blown away even more. Thirdly, in this passage, we see God's power produces praise. That God's power produces praise. We see this in verses 64 and the first part of 65. It says, And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors. God mercifully 
reinstated Zechariah's speech, and the first words out of his mouth is praise. It's, it's like a dam that had been, been holding up for nine months, and suddenly God removed the floodgates, and it was able to burst forth, and he just bursts out in praise to God. His heart was so full that he wanted to use his first words in exclaiming all that God has done for him. Now, I believe that some of what he said is recorded uh, in verses uh, 67 through 79 that we'll look at next week. But I think it could have been just a hallelujah, hallelujah, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. He just is reaching for ways of praising God. His faith in God's word, his trust in God's plan was glimpsed through the few words on the tablet and now was loud and clear for all to hear. They could hear that he was trusting God completely. This again, we see the disciplined heart of Zechariah expressing praise to God. But this loosening of his tongue not only produced praise in his heart, but also in all those who witnessed it. Verse 65, the first part says, says that, and fear came on all the neighbors. Now this fear was a, a, a tinge of terror, but, but mostly awe and, and reverence for the reality, the, the recognition that they were in the presence of the Almighty God working right before them. That the creator of the universe had just done an amazing thing in their midst. And they stepped back in awe and reverence. They were shocked. They were amazed. They were speechless, astounded, and wowed. They had just witnessed the power of God on display. You see, anytime God works in power, it produces reverence and awe in his people. And today, we may not see God working in such miraculous ways directly in front of us as this crowd saw on that day. But his power is still at work in our world today. I just want to highlight two ways that we see God's power in this world. The first is his providence. God works today through his providence. Now, the doctrine of God's providence says that God is at work in this world through his invisible, sustaining hand. And it's beautifully summarized in the Heidelberg Catechism, which says, God, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. You see, God's providence flows out of his sovereignty. He reigns over all, is in charge over all, and therefore he is active in all parts of his creation in all time. He is God Almighty. Amen? And so we see this providence in his sustaining of life. He 
enables your heart to beat as well as the galaxies to stay in their place, the planets to stay in their orbits. His providence is also shown in how he uses people. He uses doctors, treatments, and medications to bring about healing. He uses first responders to save lives. He uses governments and militaries to restrain evil. He is working all of the time. Now we don't know why he does what he does to whom. His purposes, his reasons are hidden to him. And we don't have his explanation for every event that goes on in our lives or anybody else's lives. We know the grand purpose of history. We know the grand purpose of what he's doing in his lives from the word of God and to those we cling to. But the exhibition of God's power in this world, in your life, the fact that you have food on your table, the fact that your lungs are breathing air should cause you to praise the Lord. To give praise to him for his power in your life as he sustains you every moment of every day. Even those moments that we're, we're functionally not moving on our beds and we're sleeping. God is sustaining us. When we look up at the starry night sky, we should praise him for his masterful orchestration of the universe. When we see our children or a loved one recover from illness, we should praise him for his care. And how many of us have encountered a near miss while driving? And we kind of have that, whew, that was close. And yet that's God's providential care, protecting us. And so we should thank him. We should praise him as we see God's power through his providence. But the second way we see God's power active in our world today is through salvation, through the gospel. Romans 1, verse 16, that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God. It is through this gospel that sinners are saved. You see, in our secular world today, when someone hears that someone became a Christian, they typically think about it in purely intellectual terms. That, oh, they, they, they made a decision uh, to, to change religions. Or they were convinced because of some argument that this was better and so they went over here. And they think about it simply in terms of an intellectual decision. But salvation is far more than simply being convinced of an argument. Salvation is resurrection. Salvation is giving new life to the dead. As we read earlier in Ephesians 2, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we were made alive in Christ. We were taken from the cemetery to the sanctuary. We were, we were transferred from the grave to the banquet table. There's a radical transformation that took place in salvation through the gospel. Behind any sinner who repents is the mighty working of God. I mean, think about your own salvation. Let me remind you all that God has done for you, all the, that the power of God has done for you. He called you effectually so that you heard his voice through his word. He regenerated you, making you a new creation. He gave you faith to believe. He granted you repentance so that you could turn away from your sin. He declared you righteous in justification. He imputed or gave Christ's righteousness to you. 
He redeemed you from the dominion of darkness. He adopted you into his family. He reconciled you to himself through the blood of his cross. He united you to his son, Jesus Christ. He is sanctifying you by killing your sin and by producing holiness. And he is preserving you, keeping you in your faith, preserving you until the end of your race when he will finally glorify you, making you completely holy. He has done it all and will do it all from beginning to end. And should not this display of God's power in our lives produce praise unto his glory? And this is why Christians sing. This is why we praise. This is why praise the Lord and hallelujahs are on our lips. It's because he has done a great work in each one of us. And we will take all of eternity worshiping him for this mighty display of his power. Well, the final response that we see in this passage is we see that God's plan produces wonder. Finally, God's plan produces wonder. We see this in the end of verse 65 and through verse 66. It says, And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Luke here, after narrowing in on the intimate circumstances of John's birth and his naming, he now pulls back. It's a, that, that shot at the, at the end of a scene in a movie where it's slowly panning back and you're seeing the surrounding countryside and hillside that's giving you context to what just took place inside that house or in that intimate moment. He's pulling back textually and providing a conclusion to this section of the narrative. He wraps it up by saying, all these things. What things? All the things that just took place. The birth of a child to a barren woman. The naming of this child by the name John, not a family name. And by the loosening of the father's tongue to begin praising God that they all knew was locked up and silent for nine months. All these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. This news went viral. It spread to everyone. They couldn't stop talking about it. They had seen the power of God and they wanted to tell others. It produced questions. It produced wonder. Those who heard about these things taking place knew that something significant was happening. Something was in play. Something was happening. God was working and doing something. Remember that God had been silent for 400 years previous to this. That they had read about God's work previously, but they hadn't seen it work in amongst their midst for 400 years. They'd only heard the stories. And here they're seeing some significant displays of God's hand at work. And it's starting up the chatter. And you can imagine why. But they didn't just walk away saying, well, that was interesting. All right, let's go get lunch. No. It says they, all who heard laid it up in their hearts. They, they, they 
They put it into their heart, it says. And it shows that they had a deep emotional response to what they saw and what they heard. They couldn't help talking about it. But it caused them to reflect upon God's plan. Because notice the question. As they focused in on this child, they asked, What then will this child be? In other words, what's God's plan for this kid? Because he did some amazing things to bring this this boy about. And so they knew something was in store for this child, but they didn't know what it was, and it caused them to wonder, to speculate, to think about the amazing ways that God is working. And caused them to think, God, God, what are you doing in our day? They... If Zechariah and Mary had told them, and, and, and as Zechariah's song will illustrate later, that he's a part of this great salvation plan of bringing salvation to mankind, that the Messiah is related to this boy, and that redemption would be coming through this Messiah. And so one day, this boy, grown up to be a man, would point to Jesus of Nazareth and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And friends, in a similar way, God's salvation plan should leave us in awe as well. Now, we've got the whole record here. We know how it began, and we know where we fit in this story, and we know how it's going to end. But looking upon this account, uh, looking upon God's salvation plan, should cause us to sit back, to be in awe of all that God has done and is doing. Again, we have the advantage of the whole Bible. And we know accurately what God did in the past and know his plan for ages to come. It's his plan that stretches from before the foundation of the world to the eternal future. It's a plan of a generous God creating this world. It's a plan that involves a holy God punishing his enemies, but saving his people and doing that through his son, saving a people who had rebelled against him. It's a plan in which everything will be set right and he will receive the glory for all of eternity. And this is a plan of which we need to be reminded of often. This world tells a narrative to us every day about what's going on in this world, why it matters, and what's significant and what's important. We need to be going to the Word of God to be reminded of the grand plan and the grand scheme of God, to know what's truly important, to know where this world is headed, and so that we can have biblical mindset about this world, so that we can be in wonder and awe at all that God is doing and not be in fear or not be concerned overly about what's happening in this world. We must see the world through the biblical narrative. And when we do this, we'll be drawn to worship and wonder at God's amazing wisdom. Well, God is at work in this world. Amen? And we need to sit up and take notice. And when we do, we'll be led to respond appropriately. We will rejoice We'll faithfully walk in obedience, we'll worship, we'll praise, we'll wonder at how such a mighty and holy God would be so intimately acquainted with our lives. Let's bow together in a word of prayer.
Father, we do thank you that you are indeed at work in this world and at work in our lives. I pray that you would help us to see our lives in this world through your eyes, through your word. That we would see the sufferings and trials of our lives as as lovingly sent from your hand to shape us into Jesus' image. That we would rejoice in the fact that we have been made alive through Christ. Father, would you give us a biblical mindset, even as we launch into this week, that our Monday mornings and our Thursday afternoons and everything in between will be filled with reflecting upon who you are, upon what you've done, and praising you because you deserve all our worship. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.